Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for Episode 53, Project Gemini, Part 5. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. Clear, clear, clear. The clock has started. The clock has Last week, we eulogized Mercury 7 astronaut Gordo Cooper following his final space flight, and we covered several record-setting Gemini missions. Gemini's 5, 7, and 6 Alpha, where American astronauts set endurance records of 8 days and then 14 days, and were finally able to achieve an in-orbit rendezvous when Gemini 6 Alpha literally flew rings around Gemini 7. Now, before moving forward with the space race today, I need to backtrack a little bit. I spoke extensively about NASA's first group of astronauts, the Mercury 7, their selection in 1959, their training, and some of their legacy with NASA. I also mentioned in detail the 1962 selection of Astronaut Group 2, the next nine. In the interest of moving the narrative forward, I completely skipped over 1963's Astronaut Group 3, known as the 14. But as we are about to see our first 14 astronaut go into space, I figured now would be a good time to introduce them. The selection criteria for the 14 was similar to those of the next nine, except that the minimum number of flight hours was lowered to 1,000. The test pilot qualification was no longer required, and the maximum age was lowered from 35 to 34. A selection panel consisting of Mercury 7 astronauts Deke Slayton, Alan Shepard, Wally Shearer and John Glenn, and NASA test pilot Warren North, the chief of flight crew operations, was set up, and NASA received 720 applications. 492 of the applicants were military pilots, while the remaining 228 were civilians. Of the 720 applicants, 490 were deemed eligible and 136 were selected for screening. Over a three-day period, the selection panel whittled the 136 selectees down to their top 34 prospects for further examinations. Six candidates were eliminated on medical grounds. The remaining 28 were flown out to Houston for five days of interviews, and after that, Slayton presented a list of 13 names to Bob Gilrith and other senior NASA officials. One of Gilrith's deputies objected to the list, saying that 13 was an unlucky number, so Slayton added one more name to the list. The 14 were introduced to the world on October 18, 1963, at a press conference in Houston, 
and consisted of seven Air Force pilots, Major Buzz Aldrin, and Captains Bill Anders, Charlie Bassett, Michael Collins, Don Easel, Ted Freeman, and David Scott. Four naval aviators, Lieutenant Commander Dick Gordon and Lieutenants Alan Bean, Gene Cernan, and Roger Chafee, and Marine Corps Captain C.C. Williams. There were also two quote-unquote civilians selected with this group. I say quote-unquote because while they are frequently referred to as civilians, one was in the National Guard and one in the Reserves, so while they weren't active-duty military at the time of their selection, they had been active-duty military in the past and were still quite connected with the U.S. Armed Forces. Massachusetts Air Guard pilot Rusty Schweikart and Marine Corps reservist Walter Cunningham. Cunningham was the 14th name added to the group after the superstitious NASA official objected to the group having 13 astronauts. Only one of the 14 astronauts was not married, Marine C.C. Williams, who became the country's first bachelor astronaut. And this group was the youngest yet. They averaged 31 years old versus 34 and a half for the Mercury 7 and 32 and a half for the next nine. It was also the most educated group of astronauts yet, with more master's degrees than the previous two groups. One astronaut, Walter Cunningham, working on his doctorate and NASA's first bona fide doctor astronaut, Buzz Aldrin had already earned a Doctor of Science in Astronautics from the prestigious Massachusetts Institute of Technology. According to its website, since the original class in 1959, NASA has selected 23 classes of astronauts, totaling 362 people. As I will not have time to individually highlight each astronaut during this series, I have arbitrarily selected this third class as the last group I will highlight as a whole, but we will meet several more astronauts from other groups before we're finished, and I will introduce them on a case-by-case basis as necessary. I do want to take a few minutes to talk about the different astronaut classes, almost each of which continued to have a nickname usually bestowed by the previous group of astronauts. These nicknames helped bond the group, give them a sense of belonging in the historical context of the agency, and help connect them back to the initial class of space pioneers. After the Mercury 7 in 1959, the next 9 in 1962, and the 14 in 1963, There was a six-member group called the Scientists in 1965, the first group chosen for their research background instead of a test pilot background, and an MD or PhD was required for that selection. 1966's 19-member group didn't have a name, but did provide the core of the original space shuttle pilots. Next nine astronaut John Young who also served long enough to pilot a shuttle, jokingly labeled this group the Original 19 as a parody of the original Mercury 7. 
the 11 astronauts who made up Group 6's 1967 class self-identified as the XS-11. NASA didn't expect any of these astronauts to go to space because of a surplus of astronauts amid the looming post-Apollo program budget austerity. When this group reported to Houston, Deke Slayton greeted them with, We don't need you around here. Slayton also offered to accept their resignations and only promised ground assignments if they didn't resign. Initially, the entire group stuck around and wrote out their group name as the letter X, the letter S, dash 11, or X-Ray Sierra dash 11, XS 11. Seven of the eleven stayed after the end of the Apollo program and formed the core of the early space shuttle mission specialists and flew a total of 15 flights between 1982 and 1996. The final astronaut class of the Apollo era was 1969's Group 7, the first group since the original to comprise of all active duty military officers. This group seems to have had no nickname, either official or otherwise. It would be nearly a decade before NASA selected another group when, in 1978, it introduced the largest class to date, called the 35 New Guys, or TFNGs, an appropriate name if you are familiar with the military acronym FNG. If you are not familiar with it, Find some veterans and ask them. They'll be happy to shed some light on the subject. By this time, few of the astronauts from the older groups remained, and they were greatly outnumbered by this massive new class. The TFNGs included six women, one of whom was also the first Jewish astronaut. One of these women was Sally Ride, who I have already mentioned a few times in this series as the first American woman in space. There were also three African Americans and one Asian American in the group. The careers of the TFNGs would span the shuttle program, reshape the image of the American astronaut into one that more closely resembled the diversity of American society, and open doors for others that would follow. This was the first group to design a group patch. Not every successive group would design a patch, but most did. So, of course, I have posted each patch from those that did design one on the website for your viewing pleasure. In 1980, Astronaut Group 9 was selected, this group didn't have a real nickname, but since there were 19 members of the group selected in 1980, they often wrote 19 plus 80 as a group identifier. This was the first NASA group that accepted non-Americans as mission specialists, accepting two members of the European Space Agency, one from the Netherlands and one from Switzerland. It also completed the first husband and wife astronaut team. Group 9 astronaut William Fisher was married to Group 8 astronaut Anna Fisher. I really wish I could find the history behind Group 10's nickname. 
These 17 astronauts, selected in 1984, were called the Maggots. I can only assume it was a joke playing on the old stereotypical title drill sergeants would give new basic trainees. In 1985, 11 astronauts were selected for Group 11, and despite this, they had no nickname. In 1987, the 15 astronauts of Group 12 became known as the Gaffers. The G-A-F-F part of Gaffers stood for George Abbey's Final 15, as they were the last group selected by Director of Flight Crew Operations, George Abbey. The 23 astronauts of 1990's Group 13 became known as the Hairballs. This came from the group's selection of a black cat to play against the traditional unlucky connotations of the number 13. NASA rejected an early black cat patch design, but the nickname stuck. The 24 members of 1992's Group 14 were the Hogs, a name derived from the Muppet Show skit, Pigs in Space, and from the group's sponsorship of a pot-bellied pig at the Houston Zoo. The 23 members of 1995's Group of 15 were dubbed the Snails by Group 14 because they were supposed to be selected in 1994, but their selection was delayed until 95. Since this group had two members from France, they rejected the simple-sounding snails and became the elegant and refined Flying Escargot. 1996's Group 16 became the largest class selected when NASA welcomed 44 new astronauts. Because of the sheer size of the group, it was nicknamed the Sardines, humorously implying that training sessions would be packed as tightly as sardines in a can. NASA selected such a large group to meet not only the anticipated requirements of shuttle missions, but also crew members for the International Space Station. 1998's Group 17 included 32 astronauts and was dubbed the Dodos by the Sardines after the extinct flightless bird. In response to that, Group 17 officially adopted the moniker the Penguins, another flightless bird, but one that eats fish. Group 18 was the first astronaut group of the new millennium, chosen in 2000. These 17 astronauts became known as the Bugs, and for the life of me, I can't find out why. 2004's nicknameless Group 19 saw the last 11 astronauts to train for space shuttle missions before that program was retired. 2009's Group 20 consisted of 14 astronauts dubbed the Chumps. Apparently, they were originally called the Chimps, but the Chumps may have evolved from the fact that this was the first post-space shuttle era group, so the likelihood they would fly in space was low, though most of them would serve on the International Space Station. In 2013, NASA announced Group 21, consisting of four women and four men astronauts. The first group with a 50-50 male-to-female ratio, and the smallest group since the Mercury 7. They were dubbed the 8-Balls, 
It was explained that this name wasn't just because there were eight astronauts, but also because the eight ball is played last in billiards, and the hope of the preceding class, the chumps, was that they would all fly in space before these newbies. In 2017, the 12-member Group 22 was introduced. This group was dubbed the Turtles after experiencing flooding from Hurricane Harvey shortly after their arrival in Houston. Two of these astronauts have already flown in space with SpaceX Crew-3 and brought a turtle as a zero-g indicator in tribute to their astronaut group. Last year, in December 2021, the most recent astronaut group, 23, was introduced. That this group would be formed was originally announced in February 2020, and applications were accepted in March before COVID-19 turned the world upside down. This group, dubbed the Flies, reported in January 2022 for what is expected to be two years of training. Upon completion, these newest astronauts will become eligible for International Space Station missions, the Artemis program, NASA's plan to return humans to the moon, and the proposed, though yet unnamed, Human Missions to Mars program. Nineteen sixty five was a banner year for the US space program, and as the calendar turned over to nineteen sixty six, NASA showed no signs of slowing down. On march sixteenth, three months after Gemini six Alpha and seven returned to Earth, Neil Armstrong and David Scott both took their maiden space flights. Gemini missions 8 through 12 were designed to simulate procedures that would be needed for the Apollo program to reach and return from the lunar surface successfully. Gemini 8 was planned as a three-day mission that would see the astronauts not only rendezvous with a previously launched Agena target vehicle, but to go a step further and dock with it. After Armstrong docked the crafts, Scott was going to attempt an ambitious two-hour spacewalk, testing the ability of an astronaut to work beyond just taking pictures while outside the capsule. Before we jump into Gemini 8's mission, let's talk about the most important aspect of the mission, the insignia. The flight patch for the mission captured the entire spectrum of objectives the mission was planning to tackle. The text at the bottom of the insignia contained the zodiac symbol for Gemini and the Roman numeral 8. Like other Gemini mission insignia, the twin stars Castor and Pollux were used. The light from these stars are refracted through a prism, turning the Roman numeral 8 into a rainbow to represent the whole spectrum of light. Little did anyone know, an in-space emergency 
would prematurely end the mission after accomplishing just one of its objectives. After all the problems surrounding Gemini 6's launch, NASA was relieved that Gemini 8's went off without a hitch. About six and a half hours into the mission, Gemini 8 came in line with the Agena and prepared to dock. In a matter of minutes, a variety of small adjustments were made, the Agena's docking latches clicked, and a green light indicated the docking was successful. Flight, we are docked, Scott enthusiastically radioed to Mission Control. This docking simulated the ascent of a lunar module from the moon, docking with a mothership in lunar orbit. The historic achievement of this event was marred 27 minutes after docking, when the two spacecraft began to spin out of control. You may recall the dramatic scene in the movie First Man that depicted this scenario. When the emergency began, Gemini 8 was on the far side of the planet from Houston and out of direct communication with Mission Control. Unable to immediately troubleshoot the situation with headquarters, and assuming the issue was with the target vehicle, Armstrong undocked Gemini 8. They were also concerned that the Agena might break up or even explode, so they wanted to distance themselves in case either of those scenarios played out. Both men were less than thrilled when undocking didn't solve the problem, and they began to pick up speed, eventually reaching a velocity of one revolution every second and blurring the astronaut's vision. As they fought to regain control of the capsule, Armstrong noticed that the propellant for the Orbital Attitude and Maneuvering System, or OMS, had fallen below 30%, which indicated the rotating was caused by a stuck OMS thruster. Unable to turn off individual thrusters and in danger of blacking out from the ever-accelerating rotation, Armstrong turned off the ohms altogether and activated the re-entry control system, two rings of thruster rockets around the capsule's nose. After using 75% of their re-entry control system fuel, Armstrong was finally able to stop the out-of-control rotations, but regaining control of the capsule came at a cost. Rules dictated that once the re-entry thrusters had been fired, the crew must be brought home. This resulted in aborting the final 65 or so hours of the mission, including Scott's planned spacewalk. Speaking of Armstrong's clear thinking, in a moment of absolute crisis, Scott later said, The guy was brilliant. He knew the system so well. He found the solution. He activated the solution under extreme circumstances. It was my lucky day to be flying with him. And this, dear listener, is why NASA valued test pilots so highly for its early space program. The ability to think, reason, and act under pressure without panicking. By the time they got in touch with mission control, the crisis was over. 
Houston allowed them to stay up for one more orbit so the capsule could get to a contingency splashdown zone. An hour and a half later, the pair re-entered Earth's atmosphere over communist China, which made everyone a little nervous. This was at a time when the United States had not recognized and had no diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China and still viewed the Republic of China on Taiwan as the Middle Kingdom's legitimate government. But the capsule came down right on target in the Pacific Ocean, about 600 miles, almost 1,000 kilometers east of Okinawa, south of mainland Japan. In the post-flight investigation, it was discovered that Ohm's thruster number 8 had been the culprit to short-circuit, but no conclusive reason for the thruster malfunction was found. However, from Gemini 9 onward, astronauts had circuit breakers in their capsules, allowing them to turn off individual elements of a system not working properly without completely shutting the entire system down. Because of NASA's ambitious timeline to land a man on the moon before the end of the 1960s, losing a mission like this had ramifications down the line. Scott's canceled spacewalk was supposed to see him leave the capsule and then do work in open space. NASA was planning on using lessons learned from this spacewalk to enhance the next spacewalk which would prove to be quite dangerous, in part because of the missing experience from Gemini 8. After their successful handling of this crisis, Armstrong and Scott's reputation grew at NASA, and they would both become prominent figures in the Apollo program. As you might imagine, Gemini 9 was scheduled to follow Gemini 8. Next 9 astronaut Elliot C. and 14 astronaut Charlie Bassett were both slated to take their first space flight, but disaster struck before they could. And I have to jump back in time about three weeks before Armstrong and Scott's Gemini 8 mission to tell that story. On February 28, 1966, Gemini-9 primary crew Elliot C. and Charlie Bassett, along with backup crew Tom Stafford, a veteran of the Gemini-6 Alpha mission, and 14 rookie Gene Cernan, flew from Ellington Air Force Base in Houston, Texas, to Lambert Field in St. Louis, Missouri. Each tandem was flying in a two-seat, T-39 Talon, trainer jets used by NASA astronauts to fly to and from training locations. The four astronauts were traveling to St. Louis for two weeks of simulator training of rendezvous and docking procedures at the McDonnell Aircraft Facility, the same plant where McDonnell was building the Gemini 9 capsule. It was a routine 90-minute flight they had all made several times before. 
Weather in St. Louis was poor, with rain, snow, and fog limiting visibility above 600 feet, about 180 meters, and forcing an instrument approach. When the two aircraft emerged below the clouds shortly before 9 a.m., both pilots realized they had missed the outer marker and overshot the runway. Up to this point, Stafford had remained on C's right wing, but decided to ascend and perform a fly-around for another approach. As this was standard procedure for an instrument landing, he assumed C would do the same. Instead, C then elected to perform a visual circling approach, an unusual move for a pilot who had a reputation for being both careful and judicious. C executed a right turn and announced his intention to land on the southwest runway. With landing gear down and full flaps, the plane dropped quickly, but too far left of the runway. Realizing the mistake, C turned on his afterburner to increase power while pulling up and turning hard right. Seconds later, the plane struck the roof of McDonnell Building 101 on the northeast side of the runway. The plane lost its right wing and landing gear on impact, then cartwheeled and crashed in a parking lot. Both C and Bassett were killed instantly. Inside Building 101, 17 employees were injured, mostly minor, by falling debris, and several small fires ignited. Fire-suppressing sprinklers and broken pipes caused some flooding. Building 101 is where C and Bassett's Gemini 9 capsule was being built. They died 500 feet, about 150 meters, from the ship they were to ride into space. Stafford and Cernan, still circling, had no idea what had just happened to their colleagues and the air traffic controllers were confused by the two planes attempting different actions after the initial missed approach. No one on the ground knew who was in the crashed plane. After some delay, Stafford and Cernan were asked to identify themselves and given permission to land, but they didn't learn of the crash until they were on the ground. Although personally distraught, Stafford acted as NASA's chief contact on the scene until other personnel arrived to relieve him. February 28, 1966 has gone down as Project Gemini's worst day, but it could have been even worse. It is quite remarkable that no one on the ground was seriously injured or worse and that the Gemini 9 capsule, which was in Building 101, was not damaged. If the plane had been a little lower when it hit the building, it would have plowed straight into the assembly line, destroying the capsule and likely killing hundreds of McDonald's skilled spacecraft construction workers. In his memoirs, We Have Captured, Tom Stafford wrote, Had they hit a couple hundred feet earlier, they would have hit the side and roof of the building instead of just the end of the roof and wiped out the whole Gemini program. The result of that would have seriously impaired the United States' chances of reaching the moon. 
After the crash, NASA appointed a seven-member investigation panel headed by Chief of the Astronaut Office, Alan Shepard. The investigation described C's pilot skills as cautious and conservative, but in the end, the crash was attributed to pilot error. Because the crash did not damage the Gemini 9 capsule, it was shipped to NASA two days later. The accident did not cause any delays to the space program, but the loss of the Gemini 9 primary crew did cause NASA to reshuffle crew assignments for future missions, both with the Gemini and Apollo programs. Stafford and Cernan were moved from alternate to primary crew for the Gemini 9 mission. Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin, who had previously been the backup crew for Gemini 10, now became the primary crew. This shuffle also meant that Lovell and Aldrin were on tap to fly Gemini 12 toward the end of the year. Without the experience of both of his Gemini missions, it is unlikely that Buzz Aldrin would have been selected to accompany Neil Armstrong on Apollo 11 to become the second man to walk on the moon. That honor would have likely gone to Charlie Bassett. Naval Reserve Commander Elliot McKay C. Jr. and Air Force Major Charles Arthur Charlie Bassett II became the first two NASA astronauts to be interred at Arlington National Cemetery. C. left behind a wife and three children, and Bassett left behind a wife and two children. I was not able to find out much about their funeral but I do know that both men were laid to rest on March 4th in Section 4. C. engraved 208 and Bassett engraved 195. The entire astronaut corps traveled to Virginia for the service. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. To continue the theme from last week, I have put more Gemini mission insignias up for you to look at and also included the individual astronaut group patches. As always, you can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.